Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at UVA and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that U.S. foreign policy and national security policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center, and a Bulwark contributor. And I'm joined today by a mystery guest host replacing uh, my normal partner, Elliot Cohn, who's on travel, Bill Crystal. Bill, of course, uh, well known to all of you, barely needs an introduction to this audience. Uh, he's the editor at large of The Bulwark, the founder of The Weekly Standard, and a director of the Defending Democracy Together project. Bill, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Eric. And it's big, big shoes to fill. My old friend, L.A. Cohen, but I'll, I'll do my best to ask a couple of semi intelligent questions. So. I, I don't think that'll be a problem. And our guest is Hal Brands, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Hal Brands has uh, written a number of books. It's, it's, got a, it's an astonishing number, actually, and it, it actually makes uh, all of us uh, in academia and elsewhere realize how little we've accomplished in life. But he's most importantly, the author of a forthcoming book, The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. And we'll talk with Hal about that book today. Hal, welcome. Thanks, Eric. As, as you may recall, you were sort of present at the creation uh, for this book and, and helped me formulate the initial idea. So I'm thrilled to have a chance to be able to talk about it with you and Bill today. Well, uh, it's great to have you. I, this book, I can't say enough about. Um, it is a really masterful uh, thematic synthesis of the American Cold War experience with long-term strategic competition against the Soviet Union uh, and what we can learn from it today. And I think it ought to be required reading, not just for scholars, but for, for policymakers uh, as well. It just displays an enormous mastery of both the secondary literature on the history of the Cold War, as well as a lot of uh, archival material. It, it's really a terrific book. And I thought, Hal, we might start uh, by talking about the end of strategic competition. We talk a lot about strategic competition with Russia and China. It's been part of the national defense strategy of the last administration. It's incorporated into the interim strategic guidance, which the Biden administration uh, put out in the, in the spring and most likely will be in some form or other uh, incorporated in the national security strategy and national defense strategy of this administration. But what's the point of it all? What What is it that we want to accomplish with strategic competition with, with Russia and China? And what does the Cold War experience tell us about it? It's a great question. And I think the Cold War experience is actually quite illustrative. The, the Cold War is really the first and, and only time up until the recent uh, present and in American history when the United States really did gear up over multiple years, multiple decades even, for competition with an authoritarian rival. And so at the beginning of the Cold War in particular, American political leaders had to answer this question quite regularly. They had to explain to Americans why there was going to be no peace after World War II, why the United States was, was moving, you know, not into an era of calm, but an era of ongoing rivalry that could often be quite dangerous. And I think the answer that someone like Harry Truman or Dwight Eisenhower would have given then is, is actually quite relevant to the situation today. And I think the answer they would have given is that the point of competition or the point of anything in foreign policy 
has to be to preserve a concept of international order that is conducive to the preservation of the American way of life. And I think the lesson that American policymakers took away from World War II was that you actually had to take a fairly expansive view of American security. What the 30s and 40s had demonstrated was that disorder, whether economic or geopolitical, would eventually reach out and touch the United States in one way or another. And so if the United States wanted uh, to be secure, prosperous, uh, and free, it had to create an international environment that was conducive to those conditions. And that, that had to do with things like maintaining a favorable balance of power in the key regions of Eurasia. So Europe uh, and East Asia in particular, it had to do with creating an open global economy in which the United States and other peoples could be prosperous and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and when Truman was asked about this early in the Cold War, he made the point that what happened in a place like Europe was not distant from America's own fate, that if the Soviet Union was somehow able to attain a position of primacy in Eurasia, then the United States would have to mobilize its society uh, to such a degree that it would really impact the political and economic liberties that Americans were accustomed to. And so that was the answer during the, the Cold War, that you had to prevent the Soviet Union from reshaping the world in a way that would ultimately redound uh, uh, to the detriment of the United States. I, th I think that's actually the same answer we're looking at today in a very broad sense. If you look at what Russia and China are doing, they're trying to overturn the balance of power in regions that matter very much to the United States. So Central and Eastern Europe in Russia's case, uh, East Asia, and perhaps beyond in China's case. Uh, if you look at the economic policies, for instance, that China is pursuing, they're certainly not helpful to the vision of an open global economy that the United States has promoted uh, over a number of decades. And if you think about issues like digital authoritarianism and surveillance technology and disinformation, these are challenges that, that really can disrupt a democratic way of life more broadly. We're seeing, for instance, how China is using its, its economic power to try to stifle free speech, not just in its own societies, but in democratic societies as well. And so I think the end of competition today is, is once again to prevent aggressive authoritarian regimes from reshaping the world in ways that would be detrimental to American security. Before I pitch it over to Bill, let me just follow up by saying, you know, in the Cold War, of course, when our strategy, broadly speaking, was containment of, of Soviet power, uh, George Kennan famously argued in, in his long telegram and in, in his Mr. X article that what we were looking for was what he called the mellowing of Soviet power. A point you make in the book is it was kind of an unresolved tension in American strategy throughout the Cold War, whether what we were looking for really was a change in behavior or actual a change, actually a change in the regime itself. And that at some level, you know, one ended up kind of blending almost into the other. Where do you see that you know, standing in today's competitions. When you frame the issue like that, I think we're having a similar debate today. And so, you know, the canon of the 1946-1947 period basically argued that to get a lasting change in Soviet behavior, you had to get a lasting change in the nature of the Soviet regime, that, that aggression and insecurity were sort of baked into the Stalinist regime. Kennan changed his mind, I think, over time. And by the 1960s and 1970s, you would see aspects of the American containment strategy, so the detente strategy pursued by uh, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, that I think were really more about behavior modification and trying to find what would nowadays be called competitive coexistence rather than uh, assuming or, or acting on the belief that 
it was the nature of the Soviet regime that, that made it threatening. This is relevant again, because I think this is an unresolved debate in the United States today. And so we, we've talked over the course of two administrations about the need for a more competitive posture vis-a-vis China in particular, but I don't think anyone has really clarified in a convincing way what we think happens next, right? And so if the United States becomes more competitive, if we get our act together in terms of deterrence in the Western Pacific and geoeconomic competition and so on and so forth, will China get the message and its behavior will change and it will reconcile itself to uh, a concept of international order that the United States can accept? Or are China's policies, is, is the threat that it poses the international order baked into the nature of Xi Jinping's regime or, or perhaps the, the nature of the Chinese Communist Party more broadly? I, I think that's, a, that's an area where American policymakers really either haven't made up their mind or haven't felt that they can say the answer to that question publicly. And I think it does create a bit of unresolved tension and the level of risk we're willing to run and what we think we ought to be trying to do in these relationships. Yeah, just on that, I mean, they were, uh, Bill here, the, uh, of course, there are a lot of unresolved tensions, as you say, especially early in the Cold War. And, and we look back on it and sort of tend to talk about it as if, well, Kennedy wrote a couple of excellent paper, a good memo and a good article, and uh, Truman gave a good speech and Churchill helped. And then we kind of, then there was Cold War strategy for the next 40 years. But in real, if we were having this conversation, let's say in 51, so let's say five years into the, I guess you dated maybe that into the Cold War, we would have had a big drawdown of troops, and then we would have sent, had to send them back into Europe, the Berlin airlift and so forth. We would have been surprised in Korea and be fighting an extremely difficult, unpopular, and not well fought at first uh, war on the Korean Peninsula five years after World War II. It's really unbelievable. I always, when I think about that, you know, we come back from this uh, war in which we have was it 340,000 casualty deaths? And we go back to war in the far off part of Asia uh, that no one had, where we had no treaty obligation. I don't think it really of a firm kind. It wasn't like, you know, NATO or something and uh, fight there. Uh, that doesn't go so well. We've got Joe McCarthy at home. We've got Douglas MacArthur. I mean, Truman ends up being very unpopular by 52. Uh, uh, that's big fight in the Republican Party and Eisenhower doesn't you know, dominate by that much over Taft and a whole different vision of the future. Henry Wallace has been the vice president before that, and he's got a whole different vision. I mean, that I think I say this actually in an encouraging way, I think for me, because it feels awfully chaotic and and uh, problematic right now, but I think maybe it'd be worth, I mean, I mean if I overstated it, how much, how, 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 how rocky were those, the whole 40 years was pretty rocky, honestly, but I mean, especially that first five, seven, however you date it, I mean, we sort of look back on it, I think, with a slightly uh, gauzy view of, uh, you know, present at the creation, some really impressive things. And they were impressive things that happened and impressive people and, 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 and sort of skip over a little bit what a, what a mess it was in, in real time. I think that's exactly right, Bill. And one of the, the points I make in the book is that uh, containment is one of these strategies that only looks good in hindsight. Uh, and so during the Cold War, containment was critiqued from the left by people like Walter Lippmann. It was critiqued uh, from the right by people like Herbert Hoover. Uh, it was one of these strategies that was inherently slow and frustrating. It often looked like it was failing up until the time that it actually succeeded beyond uh, almost anybody's wildest expectations. And if you go back to the beginning of the Cold War, as you mentioned, you know what's remarkable is that the initial concept of containment really comes together in 1947, 1948, 
And it, it's kind of a minimalist version of containment. And so the United States uh, is going to be focused strictly on sort of key centers of industrial power in Western Europe uh, and Japan. It's going to be trying to address the causes of instability, mostly through economic and political measures. And it's going to be very careful about overcommitting itself or engaging in military conflict or even undertaking a significant military Build up, and that concept of containment lasts about two and a half years, uh, and, it, and it starts falling apart for a variety of reasons. And, and so, one is just that uh, the international environment proved to be a little bit more interconnected than we would have liked. And so, you might say that Western Europe was your priority, but then, well, you had to hold the Middle East uh, because Middle Eastern oil was essential to the Marshall Plan. You might want to rebuild Japan, but that made Southeast Asia very important for resources and, and markets uh, and so on. And then, as you mentioned, I mean, things happen. And so if you want to remember how you know, chaotic and dangerous the early years of the Cold War were, just think about the series of strategic shocks that the United States experienced from, say, the beginning of 1948 to the end of 1950. So two and a half to three years. There was the communist coup in Czechoslovakia, uh, which promoted sort of one of the first war scares of the early Cold War. There was the Berlin blockade, uh, which started a few months after that. There was the first Soviet atomic test uh, in 1949. There was the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War, and the, which resulted in a communist victory, and then the signing of a military alliance between China and the Soviet Union. There was the uh, North Korean invasion of South Korea, which resulted in American intervention. And then, of course, there was Chinese intervention in the Korean War in late 1950, which really made people think that World War III was right around the corner. And so it is a mistake, as you say, to think that there was ever sort of an unchanging containment strategy or that we ever really had it all figured out. I mean, we had some key ideas in place that I think served as sort of intellectual guardrails that kept us from running off the road. But what containment meant in, in real time changed from administration to administration, sometimes within a given administration. Uh, and there were continual political fights over everything having to do with Cold War foreign policy as well. This may be a good time to have you talk a little bit about something you talk about in the book, which is the sort of forging of, you know, what might be called a kind of Cold War consensus strategy, which comes after the Truman administration, when the Eisenhower administration comes in. I mean, Eisenhower leaves Europe to run for president because he wants the uh, internationalist foreign policy of the Truman administration, of which he's been a part as the Supreme Allied Commander, to continue. But he also has some reservations about whether the very large defense increase that takes place uh, in 1950, late 1950, early 1951, uh, after the Korean War breaks out, can be sustained over the long run and is very anxious to put the United States on a footing to conduct a long haul, as he puts it, a con competition for the long haul with the Soviet Union. Talk a little bit about how that came to be. Well, I think the first thing that's worth pointing out is that it took American policymakers a few years to accept what we now think was obvious in hindsight, that this was going to be a long-term competition with no end in sight. And so when Eisenhower becomes president, you know, he famously orders this blue sky review of American strategy, the solarium exercise, uh, in part to look at this issue and to say, okay, should the United States be thinking about a long-term competition where we believe that time is on our side, or should we be thinking about a situation in which time might be on the Soviet Union side, and so we might have to take far more drastic measures to roll back Soviet power 
in the near term so we don't lose this thing in the long term. And, and one of the concerns Eisenhower had was uh, with this, the threat of what he called the, the garrison state, basically, that the United States would uh, spend so much and try so hard to achieve its external security that it would wreck its domestic economy and ultimately have to militarize its economy and its society to protect itself. And so he, he was determined not to allow that to happen. Uh, he was also very skeptical for a while about whether the United States should have a permanent troop commitment to Europe. Uh, and so he often talked, uh, not just publicly, but in his National Security Council meetings in the early 1950s, about trying to uh, redeploy American forces. That was a euphemism for withdrawing them from Europe and basically allowing the Europeans to take the lead on defense. Uh, this is this is a familiar theme. We've, this, this theme comes up in American foreign policy over and over and over again over the past 70 years. And what he ultimately realized, which is what every Cold War president realized, was that in the case of Europe, there was just no way of squaring the circle without the United States. That, that the only way that you could, for instance, get the West Germans to rearm in a way that it would allow them to help contribute to their own defense was if you had the American security blanket in place, because otherwise the French would be terrified and Europe would just sort of fall apart or tear itself apart uh, once again, or you would have German nuclear weapons and that would make people very nervous and, and so on and so forth. And so uh, it takes Eisenhower time to sort of reconcile himself to some of the commitments uh, that come to define Cold War policy. And it also takes time for the United States to sort of get to a, a relatively stable equilibrium uh, in terms of what degree of military spending was acceptable. We were spending about 14% of GDP at the height of the Korean War uh, in 1952 and 1953. Clearly, that was not sustainable over time. It falls a bit over the course of Eisenhower's presidency to around 9% of GDP and goes down from there. And, and so, as you say, Eric, it, it really was a gradual process of first sort of accepting that this competition was going to go on for some time, uh, concluding with some confidence that time was on our side because our system was stronger, and then putting in place the policies that would eventually carry us to victory. And if President Biden called you in now and said, one person solarium exercise, uh, and is this key question, which I think is such an interesting way of formulating it, I haven't heard that that much before, is time on our side. I mean, what would your answer be? How would one think about that in the current in 2022? So I would say that time is on our side in the long term, but I'm, I'm less sure whether it's on our side in, let's say, the medium term, so over the next five to 10 years. And this is actually the, the subject of the next book that I'm writing with a, a friend and colleague, Mike Beckley, uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. And so my view basically is that, you know, over a 30-year window, the United States is, is once, it, it has far more, uh, sort of inherent strengths than the Chinese system does. And in fact, if you if you look at all of the problems that Xi Jinping has to face when he looks out over a 20 to 30 year time horizon, the coming demographic uh, implosion, the levels of debt that make ours look rather tame by comparison, uh, the question of whether an increasingly repressive Chinese Communist Party can hold things together, uh, and a variety of others, I think the United States is going to be pretty well placed for success, assuming that we can do things like preventing our own democracy from falling apart and preventing our own alliances from, from falling apart. Those aren't givens, but I, but I think the prospects are relatively good. Where I worry more is over, say, the course of the 2020s. Uh, and the reason for this is that if, if Xi Jinping looks out, say, at the 2030s and realizes that things start looking bad for China, say, around 2035, 
he may be willing to run more risks in the near term to try to achieve the goals that he has articulated. And those goals are pretty expansive. It's making China the foremost power uh, in Asia and perhaps uh, around the world uh, as well. And so the reason I think that the late 2020s could be so dangerous is that's when China's uh, window of military opportunity may be greatest in a place like the Taiwan Strait, because China will have more or less completed its military reform program by then, whereas at their current pace, the U.S. and Taiwan will only be starting to ramp up to deal with the threat that China poses. And so that that's an area where I think we are uh, in, in danger of finding that we're not moving fast enough. And I suppose it's, isn't it a classic of sort of international relations theory and actual real history, like 1914, that a, a rising power that's also worried, though, about the longer term future and might feel it has to strike quickly in various ways to uh, capitalize on its rising power. I mean, that's sort of the work. A really confident country that figures it can win 30 years from now doesn't really need to be as aggressive, perhaps. No, that's that's precisely the case. And so we sometimes have this simplified version of great power war where it's rising powers that are really dangerous because they challenge established powers uh, and conflict results. I think it's actually peaking powers that are most dangerous. And so countries that have committed themselves to overhauling the existing international system and to achieving really expansive gains, China today, Germany in 1914, but realize either because their economic growth stalls or because they start provoking a coalition of adversaries whose combined strength they can't overcome, that they don't have forever to achieve those goals. And so if you look at 1914, you know, the German leadership is actually quite pessimistic about the future by the summer of 1914. They, they worry about Russian railway modernization and the new French uh, conscription law and other things that are going to leave them at a military disadvantage before too long. And so one of the reasons they take such extreme risks during the July crisis uh, and basically push aside all the opportunities for a negotiated settlement until it's too late is that they worry that, you know, whereas in 1914, they might be able to win the war and they actually nearly do by 1917, they'll be hopelessly outclassed. And so it's, it's a really striking parallel. Actually, you can see some similar things with respect to Japan prior to World War II. Uh, and that could very well be the trap that China finds itself in today. You know, Hal, you, you talk about the, uh, in the book and just now very, you know, I think very effectively about the temporal dimension of the competition and how that uh, plays in it. And of course, one of the things that you describe in the book is how starting with the really, I think in the Eisenhower administration, but then throughout the Cold War, uh, people in the U.S. Uh, government who are worrying about this problem are beginning to think of, okay, if this is a long competition over a long period of time, twilight struggle, as Kennedy said, and is an order that you appropriate for your title. H how do we find comparative advantage uh, for the United States and how do we put our emphasis on that? And that's really the the meat of the book is how we uh, go about doing that in different dimensions. So can you talk a little bit about how that came about and um, and then maybe we can talk, uh, you know, Bill and I can prod you <laughs> with questions to talk about some of the specific uh, dimensions in which those comparative advantages were played or not. Sure. So one one area that I think is is quite important is in what you might think of as the military competition. And so even though the Cold War thankfully stayed cold for the most part, there was no guarantee 
that that would be the case, of course. And American policymakers understood that the balance of diplomatic influence would be determined in part by the balance of military power. And so if you were trying, if your, if your grand strategy relied on getting countries like West Germany or Japan uh, to align with you, then they needed to have some confidence that you could defend them if, if trouble broke out. But the, the question, there were, there were challenges associated with this. And so one was geographic, which is that these countries are a lot farther away from the United States than they are from the Soviet Union, which meant that we had to project power over vast distances uh, to help them. Uh, and so it raised questions about how could you assure them that you would actually be there in a crisis? And, and this is one of the reasons why the North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, comes about. Uh, there were also uh, asymmetries of conventional power. And so until the 1980s, the United States really didn't have any confidence that it could defend Western Europe in particular using conventional weapons because the Soviets had a big manpower and mechanized power advantage on the central front. And so the, then the, the question became, how would you close this gap? And the answer that American policymakers came up with from the very beginning of the Cold War was that you had to be willing to threaten nuclear escalation to defend your allies. And there were various uh, uh, you know, nuclear targeting uh, policies and doctrines and strategies, and the Eisenhower administration did it differently than the Kennedy administration, so on and so forth. But the threat of nuclear escalation was at the heart of American extended deterrence and American military strategy throughout the Cold War. But again, it got more complicated over time. It was one thing to threaten nuclear escalation to defend the European allies uh, when the Soviets didn't have nuclear weapons. Uh, it seemed feasible into the 1950s and maybe early, even the early 60s when the U.S. had such a huge advantage in intercontinental capabilities that we might be able to come out of a, a nuclear war with the Soviet Union almost unscathed, although our allies presumably wouldn't have been so lucky, but but what did it mean to threaten nuclear escalation by the 1970s when we were approaching the Soviets were approaching nuclear parity with us? And so this this question of how you derived the military advantages that were necessary to make your alliances credible and thus to hold in place the containment ring around the Soviet Union was really at the heart of debates about American American military strategy. And as you alluded to in the question, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about any aspect of this. Uh, that that question was really pervasive in American conduct of the Cold War in a bunch of different areas. One of the things you talk about, Hal, in the book is how uh, we had a, a comparative advantage because we had allies and the Soviet Union uh, really had vassal states with possible exception for a period of time of, of uh, the People's Republic of China. And the defense of those allies then becomes another issue that we have to to manage. And the problem of demonstrating that credibility, as you just said earlier, uh, becomes a preoccupation throughout the Cold War of statesmen and, and sometimes leads us into, you know, into areas where uh, maybe we shouldn't have ventured. So, uh, you know, we had the experience in Korea. Bill mentioned earlier, we had no defense commitment to Korea. In fact, Atchison had defined it as being outside our security perimeter six months before the war began. But having promised allies in Europe that we would defend them a year earlier as part of the ratification of the North Atlantic Treaty. All of a sudden, when North Korea invades South Korea, American statesmen are confronted with the possibility that if they don't respond, it will have a huge effect on 
the morale of our European allies. I mean, many, as you know, many historians have suggested that actually the Korean War was a war fought to protect NATO and to at least protect the idea of American credibility as a security guarantor. That's that's right. I think that's the proper interpretation of it. And I think Truman was pretty explicit about that. If you look at his public and private remarks around the time that the North Koreans invade in, in June 1950, and the context here is everything, as you mentioned. I mean, not, not only was NATO new at that time, the whole concept of peacetime alliances was new for the United States. And so I think American policymakers understood that you had to you know, show in, in deeds as well as in words that you really meant what you said when you said that an attack on one was an attack on all with respect to NATO. The, the context is also important because remember, the Korean War breaks out just five years after World War II. And of course, the, the experience running up to World War II had been one where there's aggression in some place that doesn't really matter. There's aggression in some place that doesn't really matter. Then all of a sudden there's aggression in a place that really does matter. And you should have stopped it earlier. Or at least that was the lesson that I think most American and most European policymakers took away. And so there's this, this moment at the beginning of the Korean War when it's announced that the United States will in fact intervene as part of this UN uh, intervention where the French foreign minister basically says, thank God, it won't be a, a repeat of the past. And, and so the, uh, there was very much a sense that if you allowed aggressive authoritarian rulers to basically knock over neighboring countries by force again so quickly after World War II, you would be back in a very bad place. And so it, it, this is interesting because it's one of these areas where I think um, you know ac academics for a long time, not, not as much today, sort of dismissed the idea of credibility or the importance of credibility, the importance of demonstrating the credibility of one commitment by uh, resisting in another place. I think there's actually some pretty good, more recent scholarship that has shown why policymakers take it so seriously, but it kind of makes intuitive sense. And so America's Cold War strategy was really rooted in putting together a global network of alliances and other relationships that would hem the Soviet Union in geopolitically. But those relationships would only hold together uh, if leaders in Tokyo and in uh, Paris and in other places actually believed in the American commitment. Otherwise, they might have incentives to cut their own deals with the Soviet Union or otherwise go wobbly in the Cold War. And so the question that was always you know, posed to American policymakers was, well, uh, you know, if you're not willing to resist communist aggression in this place, Korea, South Vietnam, you name it, why should people believe that you'll be willing to do it in this other place? Now, now that, uh, that theory or that, that argument gets us into a lot of trouble at, at certain points. And, and so it certainly gets us into trouble uh, in South Vietnam. I mean, we shouldn't downplay how how bloody and gruesome a conflict the Korean War uh, was other and how, how divisive a con conflict it was uh, at home. And there are other examples of this uh, as well. But I think this is one of these cases where concerns about credibility were really kind of inherent in the global strategy that the United States put together to wage the Cold War. I mean, how much could one argue that I mean, part of the problem China right now is the biggest problem, and I suppose will be the biggest problem or challenger or competitor certainly for quite a long time. But there's also sort of a, a challenge, just chaos. I mean, one aspect of the Cold, Cold War was containment of the Soviet Union. The other aspect was what we maybe retrospectively say, but they said at the beginning too, which is some version of 
what do people call it, a liberal world order or rules-based order or whatever you like of that, uh, you know, trade and investment, but also curbing nuclear proliferation. I mean, it's sort of amazing that there were, what, five nuclear powers by what would that have been about 1960? Uh, and and then, you know, they're only, I don't know what they are today, eight or nine, but I mean, you know, it's still it, it, 60 years, a long time to not have that escalate more quickly. And it seems to me that another scenario is what even if China's, you know, kind of not as capable as they might look right now and they, or they just decide not to be as aggressive as they might be. I mean, between everything, with everything else that's happening, could one have a situation of an America that retreats some and, Instead of just having very nasty conflicts around the world, as we have did in the Cold War and have had recently, incidentally, uh, you know, not only does that kind of just bloodshed and ethnic cleansing and and so forth, and dictators kind of rising and our fellow Democrats losing, but also nuclear proliferation in various parts of the world and so forth, and then with new weapons, maybe that's even easier, or biological weapons and drones. I mean, all this stuff. I, I guess I'm sort of struck a little more by the chaos, the, the, the Roman Empire problem of just succumbing to chaos as opposed to the uh, Cold War problem of dealing with a, a competitor, but which do, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive, obviously, but uh, um, I mean, one last point just on the Cold War, for all of our credibility, the British and the French did decide they wanted their own nuclear forces after all of the guarantees, which again, I'm not sure we could have deterred that. And it didn't turn out to matter much because you could say it was their fellow democracies and they weren't going to go, go around foolishly using them or getting into showdowns. But in a world of India and Pakistan and Saudis and Iranians and uh, many other players, uh, the, that parallel of uh, an erosion of some of these norms that we have helped to construct over all these decades can be pretty dangerous, no? I think the nuclear angle is a good one to, to look at in this regard, Bill. Um, and and it is, it's remarkable how effective the non-proliferation regime is from the 1960s onward uh, for precisely the, the, precisely the way that you say uh, the pace of countries acquiring nuclear weapons has slowed dramatically uh, since then. So you say you get, you get five in the first 15 years, basically, and, you know, four over the, the 55, 60 years plus then, since then. So, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't easy. And in fact, it was linked to the set of policies that the United States put in place to wage the Cold War. And so how, how do you keep a geographically exposed country like West Germany from deciding that it wants nuclear weapons? Well, part of it has to do with alliance guarantees. Part of it has to do with big forward force deployments that make those guarantees tangible for the Germans? How do the Germans know that we'll actually fight on their behalf? Because we've got, you know, 12,000 hostages in West Berlin that are going to be killed in the opening hours of a conflict, and that will commit the United States, in addition to the 300,000 American troops who are based in in West Germany more broadly. Um, And then it also, frankly, required, you know, a fair amount of coercion. And so there are times when we go to a variety of allies, whether it's the the Germans or the Taiwanese or the South Koreans, uh, when they are, in some cases, pursuing nuclear programs, in some cases, just thinking about it, and basically say, if you do this, you're on your own. Uh, And so we, we were absolutely willing to play hardball with our allies because we worried about this prospect of nuclear chaos. I mean, what what would the world look like if instead of a U.S.-Soviet nuclear standoff with the Brits and the French and some other people having nuclear weapons. 
you had, uh, you know, whole regions that were full of nuclear weapons powers. And you had, as President Kennedy uh, predicted in the early 1960s, you know, 20 or 25 nuclear powers by 1970. That just looked like a much messier and more dangerous world for the United States. Uh, and, and this is salient today, because if you imagine a scenario where the United States decides, you know, it's, it's really too much trouble to maintain our alliances in the Western Pacific, you know, it doesn't really matter if Taiwan is controlled by China. The first thing we should expect to happen is for there to be a whole lot of nuclear proliferation in East Asia. Uh, the South Koreans are going to want nuclear weapons. The Japanese are certainly going to want nuclear weapons. Uh, and you, you know, the Australians, perhaps you could see it go even farther. And, and so it's, you know, the question isn't necessarily would South Korea become sort of nuclear, uh, some sort of nuclear rogue state? I think the answer to that is, is no. The, the question is just, once the genie gets out of the bottle, do you end up in a much messier, more disordered, and more dangerous world? And so there's always been a, a pretty strong connection between you know, the policies that we pursue and, and great power rivalry, and then our general concern about uh, nuclear disorder. And, and I think that's that's true today. The other angle, which I'll just mention very briefly, is, of course, that the other key player in putting together the non-proliferation regime is, of course, the Soviet Union, we, you know, our, our enemy during the Cold War. And so it's a really interesting case of uh, two rivals managing to work together on an issue that threatened them both. Well, this is a point, of course, Hal, that you make in the book, which is uh, one of the dimensions of strategic competition is also limiting the competition so it doesn't boil over in ways that are damaging to both sides and to global society. And and you, of course, just touched on, I think, one of the most important, which was the nonproliferation regime, which is arguably the single most important and successful element of arms control in this entire period, the other successes, so-called of arms control, in my view, are much more transient, but the NPT, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, much more long, long-lasting. So how do you translate that into today's uh, circumstance? I mean, that's something that some of the senior members of this administration, uh, you know, Jake Sullivan, Kurt Campbell, have written about others as well, which is we want to compete, but we, want, we don't want the competition to boil over. We, we want to be able to limit it. What does the Cold War experience tell us about how we might be able to bound or limit the competition with China and Russia today? But by the way, little known fact, you know, someone might want to tell Vladimir Putin that absent an option to join NATO, Sweden might think about having its own nuclear weapons again. After all, they had a, uh, an active program to have an option for nuclear weapons until the 1970s. That, that's right. And it's you know, one of these facts that is now lost to history, but Sweden was actually one of the potential proliferating countries we were most worried about in the early 1960s. Uh, you know, it's something you'd never guess today. Uh, on, on the subject of you know, limiting competition, I, I think the Cold War helps to illustrate the various purposes that diplomacy with your uh, rival can serve. And so one of one of those purposes would be kind of the the NPT example. And so uh, we're going to isolate an area where we have a common interest, even though we are rivals in most areas and, and work together on that. It took the U.S. and the Soviet Union a while to get there with respect to nuclear proliferation, but they both ultimately decided, you know, frankly, neither the United States nor the Soviet Union wanted a nuclear Germany, neither one wanted nuclear chaos. And so even as they were going to compete in other areas, they'd work together uh, in this one. 
people have sometimes talked about climate change as the the contemporary parallel, where the United States and China, uh, in this theory, both have an interest in uh, slowing the advance of climate change or mitigating its effects. And so perhaps they can work together in that area, even as they compete elsewhere. I think that that theory is sort of being tested right now. And, and so we'll probably have more information with which to evaluate it in a couple of years. A second area would be um, thinking about ways in which you can just kind of limit the dangers of competition. So this competition with the Soviet Union is going to go on indefinitely, but we want to limit the danger of nuclear war, for instance. And so we are going to try to negotiate agreements to limit technologies that we think are destabilizing. Uh, And so the anti-ballistic missile treaty, for instance, of of 1972 is a good example uh, of this. Uh, and you could you could imagine something similar today. And so maybe at some point down the, the road, the U.S. and Chinese leadership, the U.S. and Russian leadership decide that, um, uh, you know, certain types of hypersonic delivery vehicles are destabilizing because they reduce reaction times and things like that. And so there's some sort of arms control regime that springs up around that. But the third uh, way in which uh, diplomacy even cooperation can be useful is actually as a tool of competition, as, as a way of steering the competition into areas that favor one party or just giving yourself a breather at a time when you need this. I think the initial theory of detente in the late 60s was simply that the United States was winded as a result of the Vietnam War and needed to turn down the pace and the intensity of the competition until it could run at full speed again. Uh, one of the uh, effects of the arms control agreements of that era was to basically end the quantitative nuclear arms race because our arsenals were capped. And in doing so, to turn it into a qualitative nuclear arms race where things like the accuracy of your missiles mattered a great deal. And that was one that actually favored the United States pretty significantly in the end. And so the key, I think, is to think about Uh, diplomacy or cooperation, not as an an alternative to competition, not as a way of transcending your differences with with the other uh, rival, but as a way of of managing it or even as a way of prosecuting it more effectively. Let me ask about uh, our capacity to to carry this out, both as a government and as a society. I mean, there was a mess. I'm old enough, Eric's old enough to actually remember the Cold War. And uh, it was so much messier in real time than it seems in retrospect, though you do a good job of explaining that it wasn't. Uh, clean and neat and, and easy, but and the quality of leadership varied. People made all kinds of mistakes, some of them quite tragic, as, as you say, uh, maybe both of commission and omission at times, you know, And uh, but um, still at the end of the day, pretty impressive. I think history would say, you know, uh, pretty impressive leadership on our part. And I would say the other uh, major democracies as well, pretty decent po- domestic politics, enough to keep a consensus beating back irresponsible ideas from left and right and kind of keeping the whole thing uh, together. Um, I mean, it, how, and, and I do think it's not, not an accident that you think that it was the generation. I mean, George H.W. Bush was the last Cold War president and he was, you know, the youngest pilot in, in World War II. I mean, it was the World War II generation, at least for the first 20 years or so that was shepherding it. And people who had memories, vivid memories personally of World War II, or at least, their parents had, you know, told them a lot about it, and they grew up in a society that was very shaped by it. Uh, and then maybe that led us into some mistakes, but still, uh, very. So that forty years sort of was a, I don't know, feels like a somewhat different leadership class, a different public, and so forth than uh, maybe we have had for the last few years or will have for the next 
decade or two, or am I just being, there's always this tendency to be nostalgic and, you know, everyone was a statesman and now everyone's just a demagogue. And that's of course a big exaggeration as well, but I mean, how worried are you or how not worried are you about the kind of domestic situation? I'd say both here, especially because the U S presumably matters the most, but also elsewhere, one shouldn't underestimate that, you know, Adenauer and de Gaulle and, uh, and then Thatcher and uh, Mitterrand, even in the 80s and the Japanese leadership. I mean, there's sort of, when you think back, it, it wasn't always obvious that there were easier paths they could have taken. Uh, and they were, you know, center right parties and center left parties that, that stuck it out. I mean, I, I've gone on too long, but I just, I just, when you hadn't really thought about the long twilight struggle, and of course I knew the phrase, but sort of amazing when you think that Kennedy says that in an inaugural address, right? I mean, inaugural addresses are all upbeat. We're going to fix this. We're going to do that. And, and Kennedy's had its aspects of that. It's grandiose aspects, obviously, bear to pay any price, whatever, bear any burden. But for him to say that in a way is kind of striking for a, a president of a big commercial democracy that w- would like problems solved kind of quickly and and put put behind them, you know? It's a really interesting issue, and it's one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. One reaction, you know, to your comment is that it's really hard to judge the quality of leadership in real time. And and Truman, of course, is the example of this. And so, so Truman, one of the least popular presidents in modern history, when he leaves office uh, in early 1953. And I think it would have taken a lot of people by surprise to see that you know, and now he's sort of lionized as this example of courageous, you know, far-seeing leadership. And, and so it, it just kind of goes to, sh- to show you that, that it sometimes takes time for us to realize what sort of leadership is actually needed and, and where it comes from and things like that. You know, when you look at the Cold War, I think it makes me a little bit more optimistic about where we are today. I mean, I, I don't mean to minimize our domestic problems today. I, I find it very concerning that a substantial portion of the American political elite seems to have only a very you know, weak commitment to liberal democracy. And, and so we can't uh, sort of gainsay that. At, at the same time, you know, is the American political situation today uglier than it was at the height of the McCarthy era? Uh, is it uglier than it was in 1969 or 1970 when there were several hundred bombings per year uh, in the United States, and, and many of our cities were, you know, literally on fire. Um, you know, you could have a good debate over that, but I think the, the point is that our domestic situation is never quite as settled as we would like it to be, and perhaps it, it's never as settled as we later remember it as being. The other thing that, that stands out from the Cold War, though, is that competition can be a good thing in the sense that it spurs us to get our act together. It spurs us to do things that we ought to do anyway. And there are a lot of examples of this during the Cold War. I mean, it's really World War II and particularly the Cold War that gives the United States the world's best university system by convincing the federal government to invest in that system and really to pursue some very enlightened policies meant to give the United States the intellectual upper hand. Uh, we had major infrastructure projects like the interstate highway system that were constructed largely because of Cold War concerns. And of course, the reason that the federal government really gets serious uh, about breaking down segregation in the late 50s and 1960s has a lot to do with Cold War concerns in the sense that we, we just couldn't credibly compete for influence in the third world uh, if we allowed this system of segregation to persist in such a large part uh, of the United States. And so 
it's a myth to think that uh, the Cold War made us all unified. It did not. There were bitter debates over foreign policy issues and red baiting and other ugly habits became a feature of the American political scene as well. But it did give us a reason uh, to, to really invest in our own society. And I, I would say that the United States actually came out of the Cold War as a richer, more vibrant democracy for having waged that competition. And so that gives me a little bit of optimism about where we could go in the future, because I think the reality is that we're going to have to make new investments in our own uh, society in order to compete with Russia and China today. I'm tempted to go on and ask you a, a number of other questions, Hal, about the book, because it's just so the book is so rich and there's so much to talk about. But uh, we are running out of time and you just hit such an upbeat note. And it's been so rare the Unshield of the Republic, that we could end on an upbeat note that I really don't want to spoil the moment and go on. But the book is The Twilight Struggle, uh, out this month uh, from Yale University Press. I encourage uh, our listeners to uh, to read it. It's a terrific read, and it's, it's uh, I think, an important book. And I want to thank you, Hal, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. And uh, to Bill, thank you so much for being our, our guest mystery host and uh, I hope uh, we can have both of you back, um, Bill, from time to time. And, and um, Hal, when you and Mike Beckley have your book come out uh, this summer, I hope we can bring you back and, and talk about the competition with China in some more, uh, more depth. You, you can count on it. And, and thank you, Eric, for having me. And, and thanks, Bill, for the conversation. Good. Thank you, too. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>